0: Welcome to Mohani Loves Podcast. Let's talk about it. Today, guys, I have a two-time Emmy winner, David Page, who changed the world of full television by creating, developing, and executive producing the groundbreaking show Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Before that, as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, And Budapest, he traveled Europe, Africa, and the Middle East doing two things. Covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. So, David, let's talk about it.
1: Yeah, let's talk about it. If I say (laughs) French cuisine, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Or or Italian (laughs) cuisine or Japanese cuisine.
0: But how about American
1: cuisine? What is it?
0: Yeah, what is it?
1: Well, (laughs) I spent a couple of years chasing this down for Food Americana, my new book, and I've come to the conclusion that we built a cuisine out of a combination of dishes from other countries and cultures that we adopted over the years changed often significantly to conform to our preferences and declared them our own that includes everything from pizza to bagels to sushi Yes.
0: are you okay so here's a question when did you develop your love for food I mean we all love food but when did you know that was the direction for you
1: well it happened in two stages first things first I was with nbc news as a producer in chicago and i got a phone call one day saying hey you want to move to europe and i had never considered it it was just one of those things that was not in my head um but i said of course so uh then they told me there's another candidate we'll let you know i got the gig i moved to london um, and and later, uh, as I was overseas, I would move, as you mentioned, to Frankfurt and then Budapest. And I found myself going from country I knew nothing about to country I knew nothing about. And and pretty quickly, I realized that one of the ways, in some respects, the best way to learn about another culture <laughs> is is through their food. Um, nice. It tells you all about history and geography and, of course, you're sitting and eating with people from a country and you can talk about what they think and and, and how they view the world, which is often much different than how. We Americans think they do, or we Americans think, uh, period. Anyway, uh, it was while I was covering Europe, Africa, and the Middle East that I, I really got into food. I mean, I've always liked to eat. My my pants size will tell you that. But uh, th- this is this is where I I, I developed. Uh, a deep appreciation for for all sorts of foods and and came back with incredible memories like the 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 time I had been right just prior to the first Iraq war um I will proudly tell you that I went into Iraq when many people wouldn't and uh it was a a long and grueling experience and by the time the Government threw me out. Uh, I was burned. I was fried. And and I I called the NBC uh, uh, Rome bureau, which was handling travel arrangements for me, okay. and I said, "Don't send me back to Frankfurt directly. <laughs> send me to Rome. Put me in the Hassler Hotel. Nice. And tell them I haven't had a vegetable since God knows when, and I want a Caprese." which obviously is tomatoes mozzarella basil and olive oil uh, oh, which they sweet. did and at the time the hassler was in in the eyes of many the best hotel in the world those were the days when we could spend money uh, anyway <laughs> so I, I checked into the hassler in, in this lovely top floor room uh, overlooking the spanish steps and, and pretty much Uh, much of room and instantly there's a knock on the door and uh, a waiter rolls in a table atop which is perhaps the largest silver tray I've ever seen in my life with a huge dome on top of it. He whisks the dome off and there is the largest assortment of caprese I've ever seen in my life, maybe like 30 pieces. Oh. And I say to myself, I can never eat this. And of course, I ate every single one with with the juice of Italian tomatoes dripping down my face. So, yeah, I, I developed a real appreciation for food. When, when I got back to the States, uh, obviously, I brought that with me. And several years later, when um, I had opened my own production company and created Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, it was something that I was deeply passionate about. That passion continues today. I hope it's reflected in my book. But yeah, it was it was when I was working internationally that I, I really got
0: turned on to food. And that was your idea to, to um, go to these different places and taste their foods. And, um uh, yeah, I'm, very pretty, I'm pretty
1: good at tasting food. Are and, you? Oh, if I sit next to you at dinner, watch out really sure are you gonna finish that great i got it (laughs) now i'm i'm an equal opportunity taster i I always offer everybody a taste of what i'm having um but uh, as opposed to my grandmother who would always say "Uh, i'm not hungry i'm not gonna have anything and then would eat like half of your dinner (laughs)
0: Well, well let me ask you this have you tasted okay Let's say when you travel to these different places, did you ever taste anything that really wasn't to your liking? I mean, we all have.
1: Yeah, um, I'm not a big fan of Icebein, which of is it's it's boiled pigs' hocks. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a Berlin specialty. However, in that same old restaurant, uh, Hartka, which uh, my uh, one of our crews used to just adore um you can also get hoxen, which is the same part of the pig grilled and it's one of the greatest dishes on the face of the earth so i i was always able to find something
0: something that you that was to your liking so oh, now yeah. when did your idea uh, okay so we know already you traveled mm-hmm. and from you traveling to all these different places and you were eating their food and that dream was born like what happened you just woke up with it or once you got your own production company you you sat and you had to ponder and figure out what am i doing now?
1: no no not at all this was desperation it was a hail mary pass <laughs> um i i had uh, been doing some work for the food network through Al Roker's production company. Al had worked for me when I ran the Weekend Today show. He wasn't on the main show at the time. Okay. And when I went out on my own, uh, I, I was starving. And I, I called Al and said, you got any work? He said, yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff for the Food Network. So I started working for them through mm-hmm. Al. And, and that's really what focused me on food television. I then uh, went out on, on my own and attempting to pitch them on show ideas. And they weren't buying anything. I I was on the phone with them every few weeks, uh, pitching this, pitching that, always talking to the same executive, and she just kept turning everything down. Mm -hmm. Uh, One day on the phone, as she's turning everything down, she says to me, do you have anything about diners? And right. I say, oh yeah, that's great. I'm developing a show called Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives. And I told her all about it. Uh-huh. And she said, well, you know, that's good. This was like late on a Thursday. She said, um, get me a Monday because we're having a development meeting on Tuesday. And I hung up the phone. And, and on the one hand, this was great; she was at least willing to look at something from me. Uh-huh. But I had—I I was not developing a show called Diners, Drive-ins. And Dives. <laughs> I had just made that up on the spot, pulled it out of thin air or a body part, depending upon how scatological you want this podcast to be. (laughs) And I I had spent the weekend kind of desperately calling all over the country. This was back when people actually made phone calls to talk to historians and restaurant owners and uh, enthusiasts to find a half a dozen restaurants that I could put in the write-up for a one-hour special nice. I I turned it in on Monday they had the meeting on Tuesday and uh, they picked up a special shortly thereafter which frankly to their astonishment did really well they, they they had picked it up because they wanted to keep Guy Fieri in the public eye he had just won their Food Network star contest and they figured this was a fine placeholder while they waited for a couple of major production companies to submit proposals for an ongoing primetime series. Turns out that A, my special rated really well, B, they were stunningly disappointed in the show proposals from the big boys, Mm -hmm. and they commissioned a short first season, uh, which they then extended when it became clear to them that the ratings were excellent. Even, Even though in that first season, they warned me that they didn't think this concept had legs and would probably not last more than a couple of seasons. Well, Mm. I did 11 seasons before I left the show and it's now in season 30-something.
0: Wow, it uh, is. uh,
1: Yeah, no one one has a crystal ball.
0: No, no, that, that show is great. Do you ever see yourself developing another show or more shows like that?
1: Um, I've pretty much moved on to writing. Um, and and to be candid, television is a bastion of ageism. No one's going to mm-hmm. buy. No one's going to buy anything from a sixty-six-year-old guy who's only had one head.
0: Are you kidding <clears throat> me?
1: No, not at all. the The decisions Ugh. the decisions these days are made by very young people with no institutional memory. Well, do you and think
0: you should have? very a younger person if you write something about food of course mm-hmm. and you get young people to um I actually have an idea we'll talk about this off the air
1: <laughs> okay I, I i must warn you my mindset has really moved from i mean television's wonderful i did it for half a century in some respects it's very limiting you, you, you I have understand. to You have to write to what the picture says and you have to use relatively invisible language to push the viewer along seamlessly from one reality moment to another. There is a freedom in writing books that you can actually just sit down and and say stuff. You know, it, it, it was a dark and stormy night and Oedipus uh, killed his father. Okay, that's a nice opening line.
0: Yeah, And then you're right, and then you grab the reader.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I opened the book with me trying to learn to make pizza uh, unsuccessfully with my hands burning up in a thousand degree uh, wood-fired oven. That's, uh, uh, that works.
0: So your book is, um, It's a mix of food culture, pop culture, nostalgia, incredible personalities, and everything new on the American plate. Share some of those new things a little bit on the American
1: plate. Well, What's 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 happening is that many items or foodways that have been long established in the United States... Are experiencing an artisanal renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's use bagels as an example. The uh, I I'm I'm a New York Jew. I okay. grew up with what bagels ought to be, but bagels became an American thing. I mean, the, the, the number bagels one. Bagels re- and lox. Sorry. Oh yes. Well, lox. <laughs> see, lox is 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 not necessarily an American thing at this point. There are many, many people for whom locks is a bridge too far. But we'll we'll get there in a minute. The the thing with bagels is that they became a national item when they were... uh, How do I say this? They they were de-ethnicized in in their presentation. Uh, What happened is a guy named Daniel Thompson invented the automatic bagel-making machine Uh which made it possible to produce this item, which had previously been um, limited by the fact that it was all done by hand and it wasn't simple. Now you could produce as many bagels as you wanted, and the Lender Brothers, who had a bagel bakery in in New Haven, Connecticut, Uh and were visionaries, leased the very first Thompson bagel machine And they mated it with uh, another uh, new technology, freezing foods in in bulk. Frozen foods were were just coming into vogue back then. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the vaunted Salisbury steak TV dinner. Anyway, the bagels they were making for two reasons were nothing like the bagels of my youth in that the production process required a thinner dough. Uh, Mm -hmm. Hence, a softer bagel without that crunch and specifically to target a non-Jewish Midwestern rest of the country audience, uh, Marvin Lender told me he's still alive, he's 80-something and a great guy, told me that that they specifically changed the taste profile and, and the texture to appeal to people who had no idea what a bagel was. That's been the kind of standard bagel for decades now at Brugger's or at Dunkin' Donuts or, or wherever, in the supermarket. Well, of late, uh, the artisanal bagel has come back. And in mm. surprising places all across the country, you now see people returning to making their bagels by hand from scratch. That doesn't mean if you smell a bagel being baked, in the place you're buying it that they made it from scratch there's a thing called a par baked bagel which is sold uh, wholesale to many bagel stores where they just finish baking it on site but i'm talking about places that really make it from scratch i know a place do do you where
0: black seed bagels in In, the east village first avenue
1: yeah but you're in new york i mean come on Any bagel in New York better be real, uh, <laughs> yeah. or 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 it should be you know run out of town. But I'm talking about like in Kansas City, oh. mash, Mashuga bagels. Mashuga is the Yiddish word for crazy. Oh, it was an expat New York Jew moves to Kansas City. He worked for Ford Motor Company. Um, pardon me, I'm going to clear my throat. Oh, <clears> throat> sure. <Excuse> <laughs> uh, he moves to Kansas City um marries a non-jewish woman who listens to him moan and whine about how they're in a bagel desert which doesn't make any sense to her because they have their bruggers until she has a business trip to new york and he goes with her and takes her to the upper west side and I, i think they went to zabar's i'm not sure but anyway they buy bagels and lox and whitefish and they go sit in the park and the moment she tastes it the light goes off and oh my god she knows what he's talking about now uh they go back to kansas city and start thinking about opening a bagel bakery well six years later they 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 do it uh he's never made a bagel before in his life it took him like 70 or 80 test batches before he got it right but they they open with sugar bagels and uh, and they serve, you can get smoked salmon, uh, what is uh, generically called lox, even though lox is really salt brine salmon. Anyway, uh, you can get that. That's not necessarily the favorite in Kansas City, but the bagels sure are. And they now have four branches. Um, no. You know, or, or look, at, um, look at Chinese food, which uh, is often criticized for being unauthentic. Well, no it's not. It's authentic Chinese American food. A cuisine Ah. of its own that is different from Chinese, which in and of itself is multiple regional cuisines. But anyway, these days, there's a whole new generation of chefs embracing what's being called Chinese 2.0, which is among other things, an attempt to get Chinese food the respect it deserves as not just cheap stuff in white cardboard containers. And they're doing, uh, you're in New York, you could go to the Mala Project. It's a phenomenal Chinese 2.0 oh, restaurant. Oh, familiar. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, th- th- there, there's a bunch of them. What you got is young chefs who mm-hmm. are either um, interpreting traditional Chinese flavors their way or actually um, making foods as served in China that have never been on any kind of Chinese American menu. So there, there's a in fact, in San Francisco, my wife were treated to, cause um, I wasn't gonna pay a thousand dollars for dinner, but we were invited. We were treated to uh, a tasting menu meal at eight tables, which is Chef oh. George Chinese 2.0 restaurant, in which he channels the flavors and textures and memories of his youth and time creating entirely new dishes that have never been seen in china before but that are just extraordinary wow yeah
0: really that
1: was a great trip because on on that same trip uh, i got to meet cecilia chang who has since passed away she was a hundred at the time and she was really the the most influential voice in the development of Chinese cuisine uh, b- beyond the, the basics in the United States, and she she graciously chatted with me in, in her apartment. Uh, the woman was incredible. She's a hundred years old. She wow. she's wearing what looked to me like. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm no good with brand names, but it might as well have been Chanel. Flax um, oh. and a sweater and pearls, and she was getting ready to go out for lunch. And it, while I was went into the other room, came back with one of those big manila envelopes and pulled out from it one of the original menus in development from the Mandarin Chinese restaurant that she opened in 1960 that in many respects uh, changed Chinese food forever. And it had uh, scratch outs and ballpoint pen and additions written in. It was pretty amazing. Wow. I also, in San Francisco, got to go to pizza school. So that was cool.
0: <gasps> so you can cook you can make a pizza?
1: <laughs> no. As, as uh, read the first chapter, I, I point out quite early that I was clearly not the smart kid in that class. <laughs>
0: but, okay, so you were able, um, I see you have um, the legend chef, Alice Waters, and the pizza pioneer, Chris Bianco?
1: Yeah, Chris, Chris Bianco is perhaps the leader in the artisanal pizza movement in the United States. He, his restaurant he is in, of all places, Phoenix, Arizona. But he, he's from New York, he grew up in the Bronx. And he, uh, he makes only, I think, six different pies and uses the most incredibly high quality ingredients. Local produce, that sort of thing, and and he's kind of been the Pied Piper, along with Tony Gemignani, whose pizza school I went to out of San Francisco, um, in uh, kind of convincing by by doing uh, pizzeria owners all across the country to to get serious about making the best pizza they can.
0: Wow. I love pizza. I think everyone loves pizza.
1: Oh yeah, well, but remember, pizza is all American. It's yes, not. It is. It, this is not the pizza that the immigrants brought with them from Naples for a couple of reasons. Uh, when they got here, uh, first of all, pizza in Naples had been the food of the poorest of the poor. It's well, you, you make some dough and you put some tomato on it. That that's all it was. With a little
0: bit of cheese. Well, no,
1: no. If you were poor. You didn't and have it, cheese! No, you, you, you put some tomato on some dough and that was your pizza. And if you were lucky, if you had a couple of extra bucks, you might put an anchovy on top or, or a piece of lard. Oh, That's That was it. Okay, so two things happen. They arrive in America and they find that ovens here, baker's ovens, were not wood-fired as they were back in Naples, but were coal-fired uh, and, and a different size. And number two, the wheat here was of a different protein content than the wheat in Naples. So already the texture of the pizza has changed because there's no choice. Number two, being poor in New York City was different than being poor in Naples, um, if there's any way to compare the two. Mm -hmm. In Naples, you couldn't afford anything. In, in America, they found that even poor people could, could afford things like meat. You know, not, not, not a lot of it, not, not the greatest cut ever, but uh, which is why so called Sunday sauces, um, tomato based sauces that, that include pork or, or veal, uh, were invented. Th- those didn't exist back in Italy, but, but you know, the term abundanza, uh, abundance, was was a shock for these immigrants. Hence, um, stuff got put on top of pizza like cheese and, and sausage. And, and as pizza spread mm-hmm. from the East Coast to the rest of the country, people put their own spin on it wherever they were using ingredients that were common in those areas. For example, St. Louis pizza uses uh, a cheese called Provel which yes. is a combination of processed cheeses swiss and liquid smoke what? why well because Pravel cheese was popular in saint louis and, does it taste good uh it's fine i mean i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't invite you over and bring out the prevail <laughs> and the crackers but um it's fine oh um the there's a, a pizza made in pennsylvania called old forge pizza that Mm -hmm. was invented in the town of Old Forge back when it was a mining town. And a bar owner started making a pie to feed miners at the end of the day. It's rectangular, it's in a pan, and it's topped with processed cheese with the sauce on top of that cheese. I was never able to pin this down, but one historian told me that the rumor has always been that it started out using american cheese from the government cheese program but that <laughs> i was unable to prove that nonetheless this little town uh has so many pizzerias selling its particular unique and wonderful kind of pizza that uh, at the edge of town they've got a sign that says pizza capital of the world i mean well look um, let me keep know, it real
0: with you take me with you i'll tell you whether it is government cheese on <laughs>
1: okay <laughs> well there you go I, you I know there's one pizza you like uh, mm-hmm. that we make in the united states uh mostly incorrectly that um it, in t- the intent is is to replicate pizza as made in naples and that's pizza napolitano mm-hmm. but the you know with with um, mozzarella and, and basil the uh uh problem with that the 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 difficulty with making that pizza correctly, is that in Naples, it's not crisp. It's actually kind of soupy in mm. the middle, Wow! and I don't think most Americans would like that. Now, Tony Gemignani told me it's a highly fragile pizza. If he serves a pizza Napolitano, which he makes the right way, and the customer is talking to the friend at the table and a minute goes by or two minutes and they don't start the pizza, he takes it away and makes it another because in that period of time, a true pizza Napolitano starts to degrade.
0: Wow. Well, we're, we're starting to wind down the interview. I have a question for you. OK. When I read because I'm purchasing your book and I when I start to read your book, what is it going to what information will it give me? while I learn recipe, any recipes in it. Well, there's actually a recipe
1: at the end of each chapter of of one of the items discussed in the chapter. I think it's going to give you several things. First of all, there's the backstory of each of these foods, the history. But I didn't turn this into a dry history book. It's, It's generally a few pages in each chapter. And you will learn how we got to these foods, but you will also learn what we've done to these foods and how proudly we've americanized them i, wow. I mean I'm, I'm tired of hearing people complain about lack of authenticity no we've created new cuisines if you want um mexican food mm-hmm. uh you can go to mexico <laughs> me- or an increasing number of restaurants now serving the foods as served in mexico but if yeah. you want the unique mexican american cuisine there, there's plenty of it um I, I also hope you'll come away with um an admiration For the people who run small restaurants and many of which were devastated by the pandemic and do it because they love uh, serving people and they love making food. And, you know, my number one takeaway is when you get into a new town and you drive down that strip of chain restaurants, don't go there. Ask a local what the best local place is and go support a mom and pop.
0: Oh, nice. And I would love, after I read your book, I would love to invite you back so we can talk about it.
1: I would love to come back.
0: Thank you, David.
1: Well, thank Um, you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So, guys, thank you for listening to Mohani Loves Podcast. Let's talk about it. And always know that I love you.